Hello, alien visitors and teen stoners and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. And our guest today, it's a real treat, one of my favorite writers, a TV critic for Vulture in New York Magazine. Her work has also appeared at the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Vanity Fair, and she is the author of the book, As If... The Complete Oral History of Clueless. Folks, say hello to our good friend, Jen Cheney. Hi, Jen. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for your incredible patience uh, <laughs> for doing the show. Uh, I should explain that, God, I want to say it was like after the trailer came out. I don't even think it was like we had we'd put out any episodes yet. Um, Jen sent me a very nice email, very... Uh, polite and unimposing and unassuming, but just said, hey, if you're looking for somebody to do 1982 uh, and you haven't had too many Vulture writers on, <laughs> I would love to come on and do it. And uh, and we had just, the, that first batch, of course, included both Bilga and Roxana, your esteemed Vulture colleagues. But I said, yes, and we'll put a pin in that and we will come back to it. And now here we are. Um, so let me ask first, why 1982? Why you heard this this trailer and you said, I want to talk about this year on this show? Well, I think 1982 was a really formative year for me in terms of film going, primarily because of the movie E.T. Um, that was mm -hmm. uh, just really transformed my entire perception of film and just made me really, really interested in it. I already was, but this was like really solidifying it. And as we'll talk about, I'm sure... Uh, the experience of seeing that film in tandem with Poltergeist, which came out the same summer, <laughs> yeah, has really defined me as a human being in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> the the yin and the yang, the dark and the light, yes, the the fear and the That's... and the optimism, it's all in there. <laughs> so, if if I may ask, um, uh, uh, roughly what age were you in this this formative summer of nineteen eighty? I was young. I was in elementary school. I was about nine years old. Okay. Okay. So this is, yeah, th these are big early movie going experiences. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my movie going habits, especially when I was young was if I found a movie I liked, I would go see it over and over and over. Yes. Uh, which <laughs> for that reason, there are some movies that I know extremely well. And then some that I should know that I never saw because I was going to see ET 87 times. Um, <laughs> right. But I will say like, even from a very young age, like before, before this, when the movie that really, really kind of established my interest is and I think this is true for a lot of people was the Wizard of Oz um, which mm -hmm. you could really this was you know in the era before VHS like I would I had an old like tape recorder and I would tape record the audio off of the TV so that I could oh, listen wow. to it um, yeah but I wasn't just interested in like oh I really love the story or I like Dorothy and she seems cool it was like I want to know how they made this like I don't remember right. how old I was when I did this but one year for Christmas I wanted Santa to bring me the original screenplay from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and when wow. Santa couldn't do it, I was like, why can't Santa do this? Like, I don't get it. He should have access to everything. Um, <laughs> yes, he should. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so that kind of interest in the process, like, kind of all, always existed for me. But then just understanding, you know, just the magic of it and, and seeing that in yeah. a theater as opposed to not that it wasn't great to watch the wizard of Oz at home, but to really see it in a big theater was, you know, pretty mind blowing. 
Yeah. Okay, I need to know, yeah. did you ask, like, a mall Santa for this script or your mother? <laughs> what was the reaction of the adult that heard you say that out loud? It was on <laughs> my, uh, my, you know, my Christmas list that I gave to my parents that I, obviously, they would forward to Santa. Oh, um, sure, obviously. Yeah. And I feel like there was a book maybe that I got that was about the making of The Wizard of Oz, but didn't mm-hmm. have the whole screenplay. And I was like, this isn't what I asked for. <laughs> so she tried to meet you halfway and you were like, mm. <laughs> this is some bullshit, mom. What is this? Right. Is Santa, is Santa oh. good at his job or is he not good at his job? Seems to me not great. Santa needed to, to, to read the list a little closer. Um, I wanted Criterion Collection Santa, not just regular Santa. <laughs> there you go. You got Max Santa. What the fuck? Um, all right, Jen. Well, we are going to crack into this this really tight, really solid uh, top five list here in a moment. Before we do, though, Mike is going to fill us in on some of the goings on outside of the mall multiplex. Here's headlines. In January, Rich Screnta created Elk Cloner, the first computer virus. It infected Apple II computers via floppy disk. Can you imagine the kind of the, how tiny that virus had to be to fit on a floppy disk? <laughs> and how mad you had to be when you figured out that you installed oh the God. shit on your own machine. At least now we can kind of be like, I don't know, the Chinese got me. Yeah. On March 10th was a Syzygy. Does anybody know what a Syzygy is? No. Not a clue. Me either, but it's kind of amazing. It's when all the planets line up on the same side of the sun in a rough line. So oh, wow. Oh, wow. in March 10th was a syzygy when all nine planets, they counted at three, but all nine planets were in a rough line on one side of the sun at the same time. Pluto hadn't been released from the squad yet, so we were still counting nine. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, weird right. news well, story. That's significant. That's significant in a year of, of a big sci-fi movie. Definitely. Yeah, that's funny, actually. All the, the Wiccans were very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. For several hours, there have been no official reports of new action in the South Atlantic. But it is not likely that Sunday will be a day of rest. The British say they have close to 5,000 men firmly established in a 10-square-mile beachhead and are moving out to secure more territory. Argentina gives a completely different version and suggests the British are, in fact, hanging on for dear life. And as always in war, the price is life. Both Britain and Argentina have suffered heavy losses, a fact neither country is particularly anxious to stress, as both speak of courage, valor, and glory. Later in the spring uh, was the fight over the Falkland Islands between the UK and Argentina, during which a British nuclear submarine killed 323 Argentine sailors, over some uninhabited islands thousands of miles from the UK. Long-running, nope. fuck those guys uh, uh, trend yeah. on yeah. on a, a very good year. Israel invaded Lebanon yeah. in June. That's fucking lame. The Lebanese nope. president-elect nope. was assassinated, also lame. And then a civil war broke out in the country in 82 that didn't really work out very well for anyone, frankly. Mm. All right. The helicopter crashed just before 2.30 a.m., but obtaining close-up pictures of the scene has been difficult. Through most of the day, only aerial photography was permitted at the movie location at a motorcycle recreation park 40 miles north of Los Angeles. FAA and National Transportation Safety Board inspectors say the chopper, a Bell UH-1B model, lost its tail rotor assembly, and as the aircraft dipped to the ground, its large rotor blades struck actor Vic Morrow and the two children he was carrying in his arms. They were killed instantly. 
July 23rd, during the production of The Twilight Zone, the movie, Vic Morrow and two child actors were accidentally killed during a helicopter scene, leading to reforms in filmmaking safety and child labor laws, but no consequences whatsoever for director John Landis. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Don't love that story. No. Don't love... Don't One of a couple of terrible things John Landis has done <laughs> to the culture. Uh, the other one being his son, Max, of course. Um... <laughs> I will note that uh, uh, I actually just today sold a pitch uh, for the anniversary of this film, which is coming up next month of its release. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure if it'll line up exactly, but if it does, I'll put the link to that story in the show notes. But it's a really, really horrible story of a really reckless director uh, taking really bad care of his uh, cast and crew. So moving on. Yeah. Remember the top of the segment when I mentioned the first computer virus? Also in 82, yes. Scott Fallman invented the emoticon. It was just a semicolon wow. and a parenthesis smiley face at the time, but it let people know he was having a good day. Wow. that's Thank you, Scott. I didn't realize it was that long ago. 40 years old, these emoticons. Wow. Older than some of our audience, hopefully. Three events uh, in December really sum up human beings uh, in a fast, cheap, and out-of-control sort of way. Doctors completed okay. the first successful artificial heart surgery. That seems... Obviously great. great. Mm -hmm. The yep. state of Tex yep. Texas killed a prisoner with lethal injection. That was the first for the United States. Mm. And Time Magazine's mm -hmm. person of the year was a computer. We make no fucking sense. <laughs> we make no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Nope. Yep. Yep. Was it the uh, Apple II? Uh, <laughs> Should have been. Uh, probably. Yeah, probably, was, right? probably. From Atlanta, Georgia, home of the new Weather Channel Network. And from Las Vegas, where the National Cable Television Association is opening its annual convention. This is the official inaugural program of cable television's newest 24-hour live network, the Weather Channel. We uh, we did get some new shit in 82. The Weather Channel debuted. Okay. That seems oh, good, good, right? And what you've just been listening to is the ultimate in recorded sound. It will make all conventional disc and cassette systems obsolete. It's dustproof, scratchproof, digitally recorded, read by a laser, and it's called the compact disc. The first compact discs were created in August, and Sony had them shits on the market with players by October. Wow. Quick turnaround, wow. yeah. That's significantly earlier than I remember compact discs being in my lower middle class home in Wichita. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, we were definitely still an 8-track family in 82. Yeah, uh, yeah. Michael Jackson's Thriller came out and is still the number one selling album of all time with uh, an RIAA recognized over 70 million sales. Uh, some people claim as many as 150 million. You know what the number two on the list is? Um, uh, uh, oh, um, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. <laughs> Nobody knows the number two. All time, you mean? ACDC's Back in Black. <laughs> Not even fucking ACDC thought that was going to happen. I was going to say the Bodyguard You're... soundtrack. That's up there, isn't it? Oh, that is definitely up there, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. It's impossible to overstate, I think, to younger people what a big damn deal that album was. Like, it was oh, just... God. Yeah so huge inescapable inescapable and everybody it felt like everybody liked it like it just mm -hmm. it, it, there is never going to be anything like that again like because we're just not we're not a monoculture and it was also just a massive phenomenon 
uh, that it was, I, I'm glad I was alive for it, to be honest with you. Like, I'm glad yes, I was there for that. Yes, no, <laughs> just an incredible confluence of like a talented performer, um, a culture that needed a big thing to rally around and MTV blowing up. Like you'll never have all of those things happening again. And Michael Jackson time. convincing MTV to play his videos because they would not. Oh yeah. They would not. Yes, Like it's that's crazy. Right. Like please play Billie yeah. Jean. Like what? Like they should have been begging him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I feel like everybody's parents either bought Black and Black or Thriller, and that has determined our personalities. Well, uh, I think we had both, so I don't know and, what that means. Hey, there you go. Well-rounded personality. You are the future. Uh, one last thing in 82 that surprised me to find out. An Italian baker in Verona, Italy invented ciabatta. Oh. Good on him for blessing us with that little masterpiece, right? I'm... People act like that shit's a Roman recipe from yes! 3,000 years ago, but a guy invented it in 82. All right. I did not know that. Shout out to I the think Italian I saw it baker. on Wikipedia. You know so, it's true. You know, who knows how deep you know we're going to buy it. But you know it's true. A lot of the famous people who were born in 82 are just insufferable. <laughs> so we're going to go with folks who shuffled off the mortal, mortal coil. A phrase I never really understood, but I just used anyway. Okay. French director Marcel Camus. Yep. Lightning Hopkins. Mm -hmm. What, like, top ten musician mm -hmm. history of music for me. Uh, Lee Strasberg. Philip Hell K. Yeah. Dick. John Belushi. Mm. A little early, but, you know. Mm -hmm. Philosopher mm -hmm. of Garbage and Rand. <laughs> truly Bye. the Jordan Peterson of her day. The most overestimated of the bunch. Bye. Uh, Ozzy and Quiet Riot guitarist Randy Rhodes. Yeah. Wow. Thelonious Monk. Peckinpah regular Warren Oates. The great Marty Feldman. Mm -hmm. uh, Rainer Warner Fossbinder. Okay, all in 82. Yeah, that's my dream blunt rotation right there. Monk, Oates, Feldman, <laughs> and uh, Fassbinder. There we go. Yeah, that's Night on the Town. Yep. Uh, Gala Dali, who was uh, a great inspiration to many great artists of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Anatoly Solonitsyn, Henry Fonda, Ingrid Bergman, Grace Kelly, Soviet mm -hmm. premier Leonid Brezhnev, and the greatest baseball player of all time, Satchel Paige, passed yep. in 82. Yep. And finally, King Vidor, whose illustrious film career lasted 67 years. Shout I out. love fucking King Vidor. And yeah. every time he comes up on the show, we always say nice things about him. Yeah. Is it fair to call him a friend of the show? Friend of the show, King Vidor. Yeah, <laughs> love that. Uh, in sports, Joe Montana won the Super Bowl MVP by, de by defeating the Cincinnati Bengals. I am not going to name the team he was on because if you don't know by now, you really do not <laughs> fucking care. I'm not going to bother you with it. <laughs> In the Victorian Football League, Carlton won the 86th VFL Premiership over Richmond. Damn you, Shout Carlton! Out. Oh, I, so, <laughs> no, no impressions at all on this. Okay. Cal Ripken Jr. played the first of what will become a record-breaking 2,632 consecutive baseball games. Yeah. Like, yes, he plays a children's sport for a living, but he took it really seriously. Never sick at sea, Cal Ripken Jr. That was the Orioles' magic. That's there right. you yes, go. Was. I was going to say, this is local hero That's for right. Jen, then. Absolutely. We got to love Calhoun, Iron Man Calhoun. That's right. Out there playing so good for the O's. Orioles magic. Feel it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Something in that Baltimore water. Magic Johnson's LA Lakers beat the Philadelphia 76ers to win the NBA championship. There is a documentary called Something to Prove about that win, and oh. it's not an amazing movie, but it does look super fucking cool, and it's really, really 82, bro. That shit is so <laughs> nice. 82. It nice. was the last year the NBA used film only to record on-court wow. action. Oh, okay. And, you know, 
Magic yeah. Johnson was the shit in 82. Yeah, so, like, sure there's was. a real sort of confluence of things yeah. happening there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a World Cup in 1982. Congrats, it was hosted Mike. by Spain and won by Italy. Overall, a good tourney. Mm-hmm. Mostly notable for our purposes as the first year they expanded the bracket from 16 to 24 teams, which means by definition there was more World Cup in 82 <laughs> than ever before. And thus, it was a more good year. But congratulations. If I'm being honest, yeah. the most exciting moment in sport in 1982 was the completion of the Indy 500 mm-hmm. when Rick Mears came back from 11 seconds behind leader Gordon Johncock. I just did this story to say Johncock in the <laughs> last know. 10 laps and yeah. lost by 0.16 of a second. Still the closest finish in America's greatest race. That's headlines. All right. Thank you, Mike. Jen, you ready to do a top five? I'm ready. All right, we're going to do, this is not ranked, uh, but there is there is a, a sort of a thematic unity order. It makes sense the way we flowing one into the other. Uh, yeah, and we're going to start with, uh, with a couple that we kind of already talked about at the top of the show. So uh, no spoilers. Here we go. Jen, what is the first of your top five movies of 1982? The first is the first movie that I saw in the summer of 1982, which was Poltergeist. Don't adjust the television set. Your reception's fine, but in their new suburban home, the Freeling family has tuned into something beyond our world. Poltergeist. You'll never look at your television set the same way again. Poltergeist, a Steven Spielberg production, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you, check newspapers. A film directed by Toby Hooper that everyone thinks was really directed by Steven Spielberg, who wrote the screenplay. (laughs) And I do think he had some hand in the filmmaking as well. Certainly feels like it when you watch the movie. It sure does. Especially when you watch it right after watching E.T., which I might have done yesterday. Oh, right. Reporting some controversy. Okay. (laughs) We should mention, yes, the credited director is Mr. Hooper, who, uh, a famous scaremeister who did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and many other fine genre films, certainly knew his way around a set, certainly knew... What's uh, I don't know. I don't know. I go back and forth on this because it is a the scary parts don't feel like Spielberg, but the rest Correct. of it yeah. does. Correct. That's the thing that like to me, it was like he hired him to do the scary parts and he did a great <laughs> job. <laughs> he sure did. We're talking, Jim, tell us about seeing this movie because we're both obviously got so excited. We just started talking <laughs> over That's it. Okay. Um, so my parents were generally, especially my mom, attentive to what I was being exposed to for the most part. Not so much with TV because at the time with TV, it was just like, oh, it's on TV. It's okay. Which is of course not true, but we didn't have a rating system for TV at all. Sure. And then we were at an inflection point at the movies where we did not have PG-13 yet either. And so a lot of movies were getting PG ratings that maybe shouldn't have received such a rating. And Poltergeist was one of those movies. Um, So my mom had asked around uh, some of the other parents that she knew, like, is this movie okay for for a younger person to see? And I believe the piece of advice she got from at least one mother was, it's fine, just cover her eyes when the guy rips his face off. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me as a parent now, I would say, you know what, maybe not. Maybe we should wait. But what happened was, and I, I am of the belief that this was a common experience for like a great majority of Generation X, we were trying to go see E.T. and it was sold out. <laughs> and my and my parents were like, well, let's just go see Poltergeist. <laughs> Spielberg was involved. It's fine. Yeah. 
Um, and by the end of the movie, that thing scared the shit yeah. out of my parents. It definitely scared the shit out of me. Uh, and I like did not for the rest of the summer. I did not go to sleep before <laughs> six o'clock in the morning because I was sure that my stuffed animal yeah. stall somebody was going to become sentient in the night and try to kill me like the clown in the movie. Uh, so I just I would not go to sleep until the sun came up. Uh, and I believe that messed up my, um, you know, my general approach to sleep and just my my internal clock for the rest of my life. Thanks, Toby Hooper. Actual, <laughs> literal nightmare fuel. Yes. Yeah. My wife covered her eyes during the face peeling part last night. She's 41. <laughs> She's at least not a child. Maybe I'll say it that way. Yeah. And that part's not even that scary. I mean, it's gross, but like, it, especially now, it looks very, very fake. Mm -hmm. Like, you can tell that it's all prosthetics that are barely stuck on his right. face. and. It, it looks comical now. It is still not something you would typically see in a PG movie now, though. Like that was sort of no. when I, I had a chance, actually, for some reason, the Alamo Drafthouse ran it some last summer. I guess it was for the anniversary. Uh, so I went to see it uh, in the theater for the first time since I also saw it when I was inappropriately young to see it. Um, and first of all, just like, again, struck as always by just how fan how absolutely uh on point the filmmaking is it's so it's so masterfully assembled but that scene in particular i was just like this was a pg this was a pg movie <laughs> it's a lot yeah. that sequence mm -hmm. what i remember i remember the even at the time the way that they were being sort of bundled in the uh in the press and sort of in people talking about these two movies together and really like the, the, the buzz line being that um, E.T. was inspired by Spielberg's good dreams and Poltergeist was inspired by his nightmares. Um, and right. if you watch, I mean, they came out within a week of each yeah. other. I mean, that was part of the reason for that. It, w it wasn't like people were just trying to link them because it was Spielberg. I mean, he put, it was like this one came out that week and the next week it was E.T. And it was, Kind of hard not to see a connection. Yeah, yeah, and 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 from different studios too, which I I, I do sort of half wonder uh, if <laughs> if Warner Brothers, who put out Poltergeist, was like, yeah, we're going to jump on this train here and get get this one out of, <laughs> around the same time because clearly it worked in the case of your family. You know, they were the they were the Spielberg alternative. Um, when right. you rewatch it now, how does it hold up for you? You know, it, or do you rewatch it now? <laughs> I do. Like th that's the thing is it as terrified of it as I was, I was also really fascinated by it and it was sort of you know et was my number one obsession but like poltergeist was like just a level below and i wanted to know everything about the actors in it um and i did want to watch it again mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and i did and i have many times and i i feel like one of the things that works so well about it is that you know it's not it, it's really telling a story about a family that you you feel connected yes. to that family yes. um like there's a scene that I certainly did not appreciate when I was younger that I do very much now when they, you know, Carol Ann, the daughter has been sucked into the the heart of the house. They can't find her. They can only hear her voice. And so they call in these um, kind of investigators to try to figure out what is haunting the house. And one of them is played by Beatrice Strait. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of all staying up at night. Like they've got cameras trained on the steps in case a ghost comes down the steps. And they just start talking about, she starts talking about death and like why why some spirits don't cross over. And it's a really beautifully written scene, beautifully acted scene. She's explaining it to Robbie, yeah. the young boy. Um, 
And so it's really grounded in genuine human emotion, which is why when scary things start to happen, it feels very personal because, you know, especially as a kid growing up in the suburbs, you're like, that could very yes. easily be my house. Why not? My, why not? Yeah. Me? Maybe there are, you know, bodies buried under our house. I have no idea. <laughs> um, so it, it becomes very, very relatable. And I think, you know, so often when we talk about horror, we talk about jump scares or just trying to shock people. And there were certainly moments like mm -hmm. that. Um, but I think that is what made it really, you know, memorable and, and resonate with me is that it just felt like something that could really, really happen. One thing that that has really uh, that I've grown to appreciate as an adult in repeat viewings that I that, like you say, certainly went right past me as a kid is how grounded and believable and sort of lovely the marriage is like that that joe beth williams mm -hmm. and uh craig t nelson like they feel like a real they have that sort of offhand you know old bathrobe comfort with each other and like the scene when they're just like sitting up late and talking shit and rolling a joint and just like that again like like you say like the the, the reality that that grounds the story in then makes the supernatural stuff that much more devastating it's really good. Very good film. Let's move on to the number two movie on your 1982 list. One that, as we've said, is, is bound to it forever. Jen, what is your next movie? My next movie is E.T., The Extraterrestrial. A child's joy. A mother's love. A friend's devotion. In this season of peace, share the magic with your family. Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial, from Universal Pictures, rated PG. Now playing at theaters near you, check newspapers. Which was the big movie of that year and that summer. And that decade um, and that like... <laughs> that decade big. and still one of the biggest of yep. all time. Um, that God bless Steven Spielberg never tried to turn into a franchise. So yeah. uh, it hasn't had its IP mind, you know for all it's worth, thank God. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's funny because as I said before, like we tried to go see it and it was so popular, you still couldn't get in. And this was like July. This was like, it wow. had been out for a few weeks. You could not get in. So I did not see it until um, August, like two months oh, wow. after it had been out. Okay. And I still didn't know what E.T. looked like. Like I had seen wow. the right. ads. Yeah. I had seen his finger and I had seen the little, like the scene where Elliot throws the ball in the shed and it comes back out, but they did such a good job of hiding what ET looked like at first. This was a huge part of the marketing campaign was that they, was that it was deliberately kept hidden the same way that they initially kept the dinosaurs hidden in the Jurassic park commercials and the way that, that, that you didn't see uh, Bruce in any of the jaws spots. Like this was, this was a huge part of it. I forgotten that until you just now said it. Right. And of course we didn't have the internet then there was no, I couldn't go out hunting for it if I, right. if I wanted to. Um, because there was just no way to do that unless I somehow went around the country and collected every newspaper and scoured every article <laughs> to see if they had a picture of him. So, right. um, so even though I knew it wasn't like a horror movie in the same way that Poltergeist was, I was a little scared because I just didn't know what mm. he looked like. And, and they did have this kind of veil of mystery around it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe because, you know, I'd had the experience I had with Poltergeist when I went to see E.T. and it turns into this really beautiful, you know, sad in a lot of ways, but uplifting film, I think that made the uplift of it even more magnified for me. Cause I'm like, Oh, I can go mm. see a movie and something that I don't understand is entering my world, but it's benevolent and it's not trying to hurt me. 
Um, and if, in fact, it wants to be my friend. Um, yeah. You know, I also had a huge crush on Henry Thomas, and that didn't you know, that didn't hurt anything. I was that made me extra interested. Um, but I just, I mean, the way Spielberg shot that whole movie is just—I mean, it's just a beautiful movie. Every time yeah. I go back and look at it, I'm like, what a what a perfect film. Yeah, it is. It is, and and the stuff that you know, it's been noted and written about quite a bit. But the, the you know the way that he sort of made a deliberate choice to shoot from a child's perspective like that that it that the camera is always a little lower than usual so that you're really seeing the events through Elliot and ET's eyes is like mm-hmm. such a simple um cinematic choice it's it, it it now seems sort of obvious but like really ingenious really thoughtful mm-hmm. uh, a fascinating way to approach the material um yeah I wanted to share this um, uh-huh. as we're recording this and this will air in a few weeks, but uh, uh, the, the great uh, writer Martin Amos died just a couple of days ago and um, friend of the show, uh, Matt Perger, uh posted a, 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 a paragraph that he'd found in a piece that Amos had written about Steven Spielberg, specifically about the experience of going to see E.T. in the movie theater in 1982. And it's like, uh, and I, you know, I was just prepping for the show and I was like, oh God, this is so perfect. I have to read this. So this is, this is that paragraph towards the end of ET, barely able to support my own grief and bewilderment. I turned and looked down the aisle at my fellow sufferers, executive, black dude, Japanese businessman, punk, hippie, mother, teenager, child. Each face was a mask of tears staggering out through a tundra of sodden hankies. I felt drained, pooped, squeezed dry. I felt as though I had lived out a year long love affair, completely with desire and despair, passion and prostration in the space of 120 minutes. And we weren't crying for the little extraterrestrial, nor for little Elliot, nor for little Gertie. We were crying for our lost selves. This is the primal genius of Spielberg, and E.T. is the clearest demonstration of his universality. By now, a billion Earthlings have seen his films. They have only one thing in common. They have all, at some stage, been children. Mm. And this passage, like... I don't know that anyone's ever put so well what Spielberg does that's so specific and so powerful um, and why this movie, which is really, a, it's not, it's a small movie. Like when you watch it now, it's like, it's very intimate. There are not a lot of people. There are not a lot of like, you know, there are not really a lot of like action sequences and only a couple of scenes that are really what we traditionally think of as a sci-fi thing. It's a very small film. But mm-hmm. it speaks to these universal truths so powerfully. Mm-hmm. There's another great piece uh, many years ago that Anthony Lane from The New Yorker wrote that's mm. about, and this obviously spoke to me for reasons I kind of illustrated before. It's about The Wizard of Oz and E.T. and how those two movies kind of talk to each other and work in tandem. And it's one of my favorite wow. pieces that I've ever read because, you know, that kind of summed up my movie childhood in a lot of ways. Um, wow. But yeah, I think... I think Spielberg really understood children. And even though I may not have been able to articulate, oh, he's filming this way from a child's perspective, you subconsciously felt that, you yeah. know, and, and just the, the way the kids talked about D&D, a game I did not play, but it was like, okay, that's how boys were talking to each other back then. Like that, <laughs> right. um, that's how it is. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm sure you probably went back and watched when they, he did that sort of reissue. I want to say it was maybe at the 20 year mm. mark and, and he did some tinkering with it because yeah. 
he someone you know hit him in the head and he thought he was George Lucas trying to tinkle with right. Star Wars for a brief period. <laughs> and um and he took out the guns in that one sequence mm -hmm. where ET and everybody go up on the bikes. Yeah. Um because he thought it was violent and I understand that impulse completely. But I remember watching it that version of it and just thinking about why it was better with the guns in it, which is not normally a position I would take about anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it made me just weep because I'm like, the yeah. reason the guns were great is because ET rose above them. Like yeah. he, he was, a, he could yeah. not possibly have been brought low by such a, you know, man-made uh, thing, a piece yeah. of a violent piece of machinery. And I just thought there was something really beautiful about that. And so I'm glad that, you know, he made both versions available on the DVD, mm -hmm. and, and I thought that was appropriate. Yeah. Um, but just another little goofball story. So when when I was in whatever grade I would have been in after E.T. came out, um, we had an assignment where we had to choose somebody that we admired and write a report about their life. And then we okay. had to try to do what they did for a living. So, okay. of course, I chose Steven Spielberg. And I wrote a, a re report about Steven Spielberg's life. And then... With my father's help, I made a movie, like a 10-minute movie. Um, wow. It was called The Adventures of CompuGirl. It starred, <laughs> it was written, created, directed, and starred myself. Of course. <laughs> uh, and it was about a superhero. See, I was making superhero movies like way ahead <laughs> well, of Well, well before. A female director making a superhero yes. movie. There you um, go. My superpower was that I could make people who were bad at ColecoVision be really good at ColecoVision. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Very useful talent in 1982. Right? 100%. And so I, so it was like me and my brother and my uncle were in it. And I'm so glad that um, we didn't have YouTube back then. But um, <laughs> but it really, like that, that movie had such an impact on me that it made me want to try to do some version of that. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that's the case for many, many, many other people too. I love that. Love that. All right. Well, what then would your number three movie for 1982 be, Jen? Well, I, I don't know if this is cheating because technically I didn't see it in 1982. Sure. But people talked about it a lot in 1982. We've done like 1933. It. It's not cheating. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Is this necessary? That was my skull. I'm so wasted. Is this proper? What is it that gets inside your heads? Uh, is this educational? Awesome. No, but it sure is fun. Hey, bud, <laughs> let's party. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where only the rules get busted. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 20th at theaters in your area. Check newspapers for showtime. There we go. By the, directed by the great Amy Heckerling. The great Amy Heckerling. Whom, of to whom you are. Theaters. Yes. Yeah, something of an expert in in Miss Heckerling's oeuvre. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Fast Times came out at a moment when there were a lot of, for lack of a better way of putting it, like teen exploitation movies. Like Porky's was very popular this year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of these, um, like Last American Virgin and just a lot of movies about porny teenage or college guys yep. wanting to hook up with girls. And I think the way it was marketed suggested that it was very much in that vein. And there is a yep. little bit of that for sure. But you watch that movie and it's really, um, it deals a lot with the, the girl's experience, Jennifer Jason Lee's character in particular, and yep. what they're going through, um, you, you know, in terms of their sexuality. Um, she has an abortion in that movie. Um, yep. And uh, 
you know, she was really dealing with some issues in a, in a really sensitive way that not many movies of the same genre were doing at the time. Also, yeah. all the dudes yeah. are like lame in very particular yeah. sort of like <laughs> Judge Reinhold is just, I hope that you had a good piss, Barry. You know, it's just like they're all just <laughs> sort of bitches and just sort of very particular kind of that to me feels like. A, f- a woman director feels like a woman observer of sort of especially like teenage dudes, not just teenage dudes, to be fair. But, you know, they're not really heroes. They're not. Yeah. I, yeah. Good movie. Fantastic. Yeah. No, it's I mean, the, the, the backstory I've always found so fascinating that this was this was based on a book and was the first screenplay by Cameron Crowe. Um, who, you know, as we know from Almost Famous, started writing very young and looked younger than he was. And this was the result of him basically, from what I understand, going undercover at a yeah. high school and then like sort of writing from from the, the trenches of of early 80s um, high school life. And then he turned that into the screenplay, which then launched his own film career. Um, so, yeah, I really think there's a specificity um, to the shittiness of the dudes that only uh, uh, an actual teenager can capture. But then, yeah, Amy Heckerling's female gaze, which was very much absent from the sort of horny teenager movie, I believe was what Ebert called this particular trend, yeah. um, is so striking, especially when you watch it now sort of outside of its time. And the the grace of that Jennifer Jason Lee performance is is, I mean, she's she's doing a real performance in this movie like a real tough nuanced performance the the kind of thing that we came to expect from Jennifer Jason Lee but as a really young uh young actor it's an, it's a really marvelous piece of work by her i think yeah and you know and phoebe cates who plays her best friend i mean the most famous mm. scene from that movie is phoebe cates getting out of the pool of in the red bikini taking off her top what people forget is that the the rest of that scene that was a fantasy Judd Reinhold's character is having, and then he gets caught right. masturbating, and he looks like a jackass. So, yes, to bring the female gaze back into face, it, her face when she catches him is so perfect. Yeah, it's a perfect piece I mean, of facial she's reaction. She's got nice boobs, but like the scene is iconic because of that ending. Yeah, I think yes. you know that's like. Yeah, but I think people forget the ending. They remember the yeah. the car song and her in slow yeah. motion and all that. Um, yep. But I, but I will say, like, obviously Phoebe Cates' character beautiful girl and at first you think you know she's the one who's kind of teaching um jennifer jason lee's character about sex and how it all works and then slowly you realize like she's not very happy she's dating guys that are too old for her and she doesn't really have a handle on things either and again that's that's the genius of 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 amy heckerling and also you know we're talking about how et is from a child's perspective like this was a high school movie clearly made Mm -hmm. by people who understood that perspective and they weren't pandering to teenagers they weren't like pretending they knew how to talk teen speak like it felt very mm-hmm. genuine and mm-hmm. i and i can't believe we haven't talked about spicoli yet because that's super important <laughs> <laughs> it, is. it is i mean he was you know i i do remember at least when when it was first airing on hbo like he the the, the entire marketing machine for that movie was built around sean penn as spicoli like that he that we use the word iconic, we misuse it, but that was like, mm-hmm. that's that's an iconic performance and it was immediately so. Like everyone was excited about Sean Penn and about how funny he was in that movie. Right. I mean, it is, I think it established him as an actor. I think it, yep. it's still to me um, one of his best performances. And it, yep. not only did it establish him, 
I think it established a particular type of character, like a stoner surfer guy, which we hadn't seen exactly like that. And there have been like 8 million of those. Like you just, yeah. and we call them Spicolis, basically. If we can't remember yeah. the character's name, it's like, you know, the Spicoli guy in Clueless or the Spicoli guy in this or that. Like what an incredible <laughs> performance that you have created a whole genre of character because of what you did. Yes. Yes. And convince oh. generations to order pizza in class. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. All right. Well, well, speaking of movies where the, the guys are different variations of dicks, uh, what is the fourth <laughs> movie in your, your 1982 list, Jen? The fourth movie is a movie that as a feminist, I probably shouldn't have put on my list, but it's, it's really a favorite of mine and it's Barry Levinson's diner. There's a little place where people gather to enjoy the banquet of life. I get a date with Carol Heathrow. She is death. It's the diner. And what they really want most isn't on the menu. The debut film by 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 Barry Levinson as a director, written several several uh, produced screenplays, including some stuff with Mel Brooks. But this was his first time behind the camera, which I think is is pretty impressive. Yeah, and I, you know, again, this is when I was a little too young to see at the time of its release, but it was sure. a favorite of my parents. Mine who, too. Yeah, who and it, it's set in Baltimore, so it has a yeah. lot of like localish. Like my yeah. parents thought the idea of having a Baltimore Colts wedding was the funniest thing they'd ever heard in their lives. <laughs> um, but I didn't see it until I was in high school. And, you know, it is about a bunch of dudes who have not grown up and they, yep. sh you know, theoretically should have. It's after college. Um, but it is such a funny and well-written movie. And it's so, um, to me, that movie was Seinfeld before it was Seinfeld, like in terms yes. of the way that they talk. Like there's yes. a scene where Paul Reiser's character goes, I'm not comfortable with the word nuance, which yes. is <laughs> something that Jerry or George would say in an episode. Totally. Of <laughs> totally. Um, and I mean, they had countless scenes in the diner in that show. Like the whole, are you going to eat that thing could be right out of a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> that's never occurred to me, but that's so on point. Yeah. And I, you know, and maybe it's because I, you know, I had an older brother who was nice enough to let me hang out with him and his friends sometimes, but Aww. the rhythm of the way, guys talk to each other like I was always fascinated by that um and and you know that movie kind of captured it for me and also just people who have kept the same friends for a long time which as it turns out I I have many years later um and you have this sort of different understanding of each other when you've known each other since you were kids and I just I think everybody in that movie made you feel like they had all known each other for years yeah yeah, definitely. I got to tell you what, you know, I've, I've seen it a few times. It had been a long time since I I had seen it. So I, I rewatched it um, for this episode. And, you know, I, I was struck again by the things I've always liked about it, which, I, you know, I'm always knocked out when a when a, a, a directorial debut is as confident as this one is. You know, he's got he's he masters the tone. He's clearly great with actors and a great eye for casting. Like so many of these guys were basically unknowns when they were cast in this thing. And Ellen, not to just Ellen say guys, Barkin. Ellen Barkin. Holy shit. She's so good in this movie. Um, the compositions are really striking. Like it's so hard to do a movie of people talking and make it visually compelling. And he does that. But I really truly had forgotten or hadn't really thought about how melancholy that last shot is. Mm, um, yeah that the way that it brings us to that point and to, to, to hold on that particular nanosecond where we really see that these guys are miserable 
and their best days are behind them and they fucking know it. Like, and that, that sort of fleeting moment of, of recognition of that uh, and to hold it and to then go into a great, you know, conversational closing credit sequence. I just, I think he, he finds such a perfect note to end this thing on. It's really, really impeccable, I think. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm putting this on it in retrospect, um, but I believe it's like turn it is it turning to 1960 when at the end of the movie because yes. it's New Year's yes. Eve. Yeah. And you know, it does feel like it's the end of an era and you know, white dudes are not necessarily going to be the center of the era anymore and maybe they don't even realize mm. it yet, but looking back in retrospect there's an element of that as mm. well. Well said. Good good God, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. So well that brings us to uh, to the big conclusion here. So Jenchani, what is the fifth and final movie on your 1982 list. This is another mainstream movie that um, in retrospect holds up really great and in other ways doesn't at all. <laughs> uh, and that is Tootsie starring Dustin Hoffman as a man pretending to be a woman. But I didn't know I was going to be working for the rest of my life as a woman. When you have to go this far. It is just for the money, isn't it? It's not just so you can wear these little outfits. To get this big. I'd like to make her look a little more attractive. How far can you pull back? How do you feel about Cleveland? Life can get very uh, crazy. I don't want to hurt you. <laughs> All right, just shut your mouth right now. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Dustin Hoffman is Tootsie, rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. It was very popular in the 80s. Huge, huge. Like, well, I was shocked, frankly, when we got, we'll get to the box office here in a little bit. But, you know, I remember this being a hit and I remember, you know, some some uh, some magazine covers and things like that. But holy shit, this was a huge sensation in a way that I yes. that I didn't quite realize at the time. Um, what do you love so much? Let's start with the good. <laughs> what what, yeah. what holds up? What do you love still about Tootsie? I mean, I think it's just, it's a very, very funny movie. Mm. And the scenes that are funny have not stopped being funny. Yes. Um, the whole relationship that Dustin Hoffman has with his agent, um, played <laughs> yes. by um, Sidney Pollack, and yeah. just how crazy he constantly drives him because he's just, he's just too much to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there's also like some real tenderness in it. Like, uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman's character starts to fall in love with Jessica Lange, who's on the soap opera that he's on, pretending he's a, a female actor and, and playing a female character. And he so much wants to express his feelings to her, but obviously he can't because that will blow his cover. Yeah. Um, and just the, the dynamics of that, uh, I just, yeah, I was just, I was just fascinated by it. And so there, yeah. there are aspects of it that are really subtle and lovely. And then there are some things that certainly have you know, were someone to remake Tootsie, I don't think they would do it quite the same way. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Um, the 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 thing that I always that always sucks me in every time I watch it is just, you know, I when people talk about screwball comedy, I think it's it's really hard to pinpoint a lot of films that exist in that genre outside of that specific time frame when the screwball comedy was king. But I think Tootsie is one of the few films that like approaches that primarily the climax, the live broadcast climax of Tootsie. I don't know that there has been since then a comic sequence that is as impeccably written, performed, directed, intercut, 
everything in that entire stretch of the movie hits so hard. It's so funny the way that they that that everything in that movie comes to a head at that particular point. I love it so much. And and it, mm-hmm. and and it always makes me laugh every single time. Like it's not just that, you know, oh well, it's, it I don't find it as funny anymore, but I can appreciate it from it. No, it's still funny as shit. It's so good. Yeah, I, I don't think there are any wasted moments in that movie. I think no. it's a very well edited film and like every every scene in it counts and is there for a reason. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, as Liz Lemon pointed out, it is used as a as a reference point for how to write a good screenplay. And I think there's <laughs> there's a reason for that. All right, Jen, this is an excellent top five. Thank you so much for putting it back together. This is the first time in a long time where it was where we had a top five where I had actually already seen every single thing on it. Uh, but I just rewatched them all again because they're all so fucking good. <laughs> And now, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always, always something new to discover, Mike. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore the best of cinema streaming anytime, anywhere. So, for example, let's say you wanted to watch something from 1982. Uh, this week's focal year that's currently streaming in the U.S., I would recommend Horace B. Jenkins' Cane River, which is a terrific indie drama. It was shot on location in Louisiana with an all-African-American cast and crew. It was never really, like, properly released in its time. It was long thought lost and then rediscovered about 10 years ago. You know, I I love me a a cinematic archaeology story, Mike. I love it when some shit disappears and then they find it again and it's good. Um, and then it was restored and uh, released in 2020 by our friends at a Skyloscope. Uh, it's 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 a great little movie. It's a really vivid portrait of small town, working class black life. Uh, really worth your time. That's Kane River currently streaming in the U.S. And I went with a new release. I checked out okay. Blank Narcissus, Passion of the Swamp. Peter Strickland's okay. short film riff on Pink Narcissus. Bromesco, the 1971 show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. You remember, you know, Pink Narcissus is the all these kind of fantasy scapes and, and mm-hmm. is one guy and his sort of erotic imaginings. And right, it right. was fantastic. And so Blank Narcissus is... Basically, they found the director found a can of film under his mm-hmm. bed, or he said it mm-hmm. had been there the whole time, you know. And they got this film <laughs> developed, and they it's it's like a it's like a DVD extras, you know. Okay. This footage just didn't get into Pink Narcissus, right. but you can tell that it was shot at the same time and with the same person. And he hasn't been in contact with this guy for thirty years, and so it's the the conversation is as much about the way their relationship sort of developed and turned into this amazing piece of art and then fizzled out and and the way he sort of looks back on it now and and the relationship and the film and that apartment and they're all sort of one thing and it's just a really beautiful little thing and it is you know watching things like this i think is the difference between like watching movies and participating in cinema culture blank narcissus passion of the swamp very cool all right, and that's, of course, from Peter Strickland, who did The Dirk of Burgundy and In Fabric and Flux Gourmet and a lot of other great stuff. So uh, we love him. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash A Very Good Year. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash A Very Good Year for a whole month of great cinema for free. For free! 
All right, let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. The record company's only kidding. This is a, a, a big list at the top here. And I don't, has anybody watched this movie since 1982? Best picture, best director to Richard Attenborough, best actor to Ben Kingsley, best original screenplay to John Briley for Gandhi. I figured, I feel like by the time I was sort of aware of Gandhi, the 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 tide had turned. The ship had sailed. Yeah. Yeah. The ship had sailed on that one. Yeah. I was so upset. That was the first Oscars my parents let me stay up to watch because I was like, of course, E.T. is going to win. Like, of course. Nothing else is as good as that. Of course. And it didn't. And I was just beside myself with fury. And that also led me to be very interested in the Oscars from that point forward because I, I was like, <laughs> are they going to do this kind of shit every year? Are they going to be wrong like this? <laughs> More often answer, than yes. not, frankly. Um, have you, I still to this, I, I still to this day have never seen Gandhi. Have you? No. And actually, I was talking about this with a friend of mine recently, and he was like, it's a really good movie. And I'm like, I refuse. I'm sure. I refuse on principle. My protest stands. My protest stands. I I think now, like, you can't. I haven't watched it, like, top to bottom, you know, like, in one, like, you know, really engaged Mm -hmm. sitting. But it's just impossible to not see just Ben Kingsley all under all that makeup. And we just we just sort of feel so differently about it at this point. That it's yep. very hard to watch and like take seriously, yep. you know. Yeah. Uh, good movie or not, like, and I think that that the sort of the fact that the culture has sort of moved on from having from that sort of a casting choice is something many of us are are like are behind. Many of us are okay mm-hmm. with that. It's not yeah. sort of something that's yeah. like happening to me in in yes. in the culture I'm a part of. Like I'm in. Like that's <laughs> yes. a great idea. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. It also really to me smacked of. You know, this is the Academy trying to pick this very serious film about a serious figure and pat themselves on the back instead of giving it to the nice movie about the alien and the little boy, because that would seem like, oh, that's not serious enough, which is obviously ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's totally credible. Yes. But then Best Actress went to Meryl Streep for Sophie's Choice. That's a good movie. Not not a Gandhi type of movie. They they shifted gears a little with the actress. Yeah, but still, like, take it very, very serious. seriously. Yes. Serious movie. Very serious. Best Supporting Actor went to Louis Gossett Jr. Best Original Song to Up Where We Belong from An Officer and a Gentleman. I like An Officer and a Gentleman, uh, but mostly for Deborah Winger, who did not win an Oscar uh, for it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Officer and Gentleman is good. And uh, and that is sort of the quintessential 1980s Oscar winner for Best Original Song, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, that's... Honestly, I think it was a great thing at the time, which is like you would look at the list of best original songs and you're like, oh, all these songs are on the radio. I know all of these songs. Right. They were all popular and had, yep. you know, for the most part, not always, but generally some mainstream appeal. Yep. Not the case anymore. No. <laughs> best supporting actress went to Jessica Lang for Tootsie. She was also nominated right. for best actress for Francis. Jessica Lang fucking yeah. killing it in 82. Yeah, big eighty two, and she's and Francis is. I just watched Francis for the first time a few months ago. He's great in it. Best adapted screenplay went to Costa Gavras and Donald E. Stewart for Missing, which I still haven't seen. Me either. All right, and best foreign film went to Begin the Beguine. Beguine. Begin? Begin I don't know how to, begin? We need to pronounce her on this begin one. Begin the Begin. Begin the Begin. Yeah, I'm not, I, 
Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, good. Other significant award winners. Golden Globe for Best Actress Comedy Musical went to Julie Andrews for Victor Victoria. Big year for cross-dressing comedies. Uh, yes, it I was. love Victor Victoria. It's really funny and 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 uh, fast paced and sexually fluid in a way that I think is pr- frankly pretty admirable for for eighty two. Um, in terms of uh, of what I recall about say like the James Gardner character in that in that particular movie, the Palme d'Or at Cannes was split between Missing and Yol. All right, all right. <laughs> Not familiar. Nope. Golden Lion at Venice went to the State of Things. Which I also haven't seen. Mm-hmm. And the Golden Bear at Berlin went to Veronica Voss. I love that. Now that one I've seen. That is Fastbinder, and that movie is fucking great. Oh yeah, That's my thoughts. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good one. It's a really good one. Uh, let's look at the top ten and see if any mm-hmm. of these things are on it. I uh, a couple of things pop mm-hmm. up here. Mm-hmm. Number ten yep. was Annie. <laughs> That's okay. Where did you Where do you land on Annie, Jen? I loved Annie when it came out. I mean, I yes. already had like the Broadway cast. Recording. You were the target audience. I was yes. the target audience, hundred percent. Yes, yes. Some, yeah. some. Uh, 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 I get the feeling when I watch it now that John Huston's heart might not have been all the way in that particular <laughs> directorial assignment. Probably not. Yeah. But Carol Burnett's great in it. She sure is. Mm-hmm. Good songs. Number nine, best little whorehouse in Texas. Hey, speaking of the Bodyguard soundtrack. <laughs> the uh, the film that originally included uh, I will always I love will you. Always love you. I like the best little whorehouse in Texas, but it, mostly just because like Dolly Parton is so great in it, and her and Bird have such great chemistry in it. I mm-hmm. I I do like that one. Uh, Jen, have you have you seen that one? I have not. I'm not really right. there's a lot of these that I've never seen. <laughs> it's bad. Was that her follow up to Nine to Five, or was there something in between? Uh, that would have been um, the next one after Nine to Five. Yeah. 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 That's right. yeah that. Yeah. I mean, that's you're gonna go see. Best little whorehouse in Texas. Obviously, it made not, it made number yep. nine. Number eight, yep. Poltergeist. Well deserved. Good. There it is. Yep. Number seven was Forty Eight Hours. Yep, Eddie. Good. Yes. Yep. Yes. Funny. Yep. Number six, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> One of the good ones. Like Star Trek Two. Yeah, Jen. I'm not a Star Trek person, but I did enjoy Star Trek Two. Yep. I same. understood why everybody cried when I eventually same. watched it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing about Star Trek too. You can enjoy it without needing to like have read all right. the books or what the fuck ever. Right. Number five. Right. Yeah. Porky's. It was fucking horrible. Oh, Porky's is a big old piece of shit. Oh God. <laughs> I feel, you know what? I don't think I ever saw it, but I feel like I saw it. Yeah. I saw enough <laughs> scenes from it that yeah. I got the gist. That's the thing is yeah. you've, you've seen it. <laughs> it's really like even by the like sort of early eighties horny teenager standards, it's really fucking vile. It is not a good movie. Yeah. 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 Number four was Rocky three. Good movie. <laughs> so so the the wheels are starting to fall off the wagon of the Rocky series by Rocky Three. A lot of a lot of montages. Not as many as Rocky Four, but a lot of montages in Rocky Three. This is an ongoing uh, theme of this show and our our relationship, and thus our life, Jen. Which is that for me, the Rockies peak at four, and for Jason, they trough at four and see. So this right. is a <laughs> this is an uh, ongoing conversation a, between an, us. An essentially different way of seeing the world. <laughs> How does the Creed movies fit into this? Like the more recent ones. The the first Creed movie is like absolute masterpiece as good as to me the highlights of the series rocky one and rocky (laughs) two uh and the other two are they're i they're like rocky three level right there's really no debate on the creeds 
They, I mean, you know, there we go. Yeah, they're pretty. Yeah. We're pretty much in, in league with that. Number three, yeah. uh, an officer and a gentleman did extremely well. Holy sure granola! Did. Good, good horny movie. People wanted to see those two uh, have sex together. Yeah, number two, Tootsie. Yeah, that movie number was two number two movie. of the year. Two. That's so awesome. That movie would not. I mean, and not just because of the you know the right. cross dressing or anything else. Just that kind of film yeah. would not even get a green light now to be yeah. a theatrical release. Yep. It just wouldn't 100%. happen. Yep. Yep. You're right. And number one, now this is another reason to to be mad about the Oscars and that Gandhi nonsense, because if they would have given it to fucking E.T., then you would have gotten a, a hat trick. This one's she not on you. would have gotten the very good year hat trick. Yeah. Uh, this one's not on you. This so one's close. on the Academy. But number one was, was E.T., Extraterrestrial. Yep. Yeah, you got yep. two races out of the three for the uh, for the uh, the triple Wait, crown. Wait, so it's box office Oscar. What's the other one? Uh, and and the guest top five. Like if if, oh, if one oh, of oh. if one of your movies also topped the box office and won best picture, you win the hat trick. It's happened got a it. handful of times. It's not a frequent occurrence. All right, yeah. Jen, you ready for a lightning round? I'm I'm nervous, but I I'll try my best. All right, I, I I cracked open the John Willis uh, film annual Screen World to see some of the this a, a lot of fun stuff and just a lot of absolute trash in 1982. So let's <laughs> let's barrel through, Mike. Five minutes on the clock, please. And here we go. Grease two. Oh God, this movie. Um, am I supposed to just say one word, or can I? You say could more say than a, one word? you could say a few things even if you like. Just keep keep it tight. Okay, I loved it when I saw it. Even I knew, I consciously knew it was bad, but I embraced <laughs> it nonetheless. I had the soundtrack. My mom got me the actual movie poster, like the movie theater, local movie theater was just going to throw it away, and she got it for my nice. birthday. And, and nice stock. Um, but that movie is really, aside from Michelle Pfeiffer, a piece of shit. And the fact yep. that there are people who think it's better than Grease <laughs> is ridiculous and heresy. It's not better than Grease. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. It was quite sophisticated. See, this is, uh, I did not see Blade Runner until I was in college. And I think it's a brilliant movie. And I think, you know, as you guys, I'm sure would say, the visual aesthetic had just a massive influence. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't remember how it did at the box office, but I feel like it wasn't particularly well. Nope. I mean, it certainly wasn't in the top 10, obviously. Nope. Uh, I think that was one that didn't get appreciated until later. Yeah, the next film came out that same summer, and I think they both sort of toppled to uh, to the feet of E.T., and that's John Carpenter's The Thing was released in 1982. I feel like I saw this, but I remember better seeing the original The Thing because they showed it to us in, like, first grade. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> an assembly? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I was scared a lot as a child. Very random. That's an extremely <laughs> random thing to show children. Um, Tron was released in 1982. I did not see the original Tron, but I, I remember being fascinated again by the visuals of it. And like, even if you didn't see Tron, like you knew what that aesthetic was. Um, and I thought that was really cool. But yeah, it was not something my parents, I don't, I don't remember what it was rated. It was probably PG, but my parents probably wouldn't have taken me to see that. I, I'm pretty sure you didn't, at least in its original run, see Paul Schrader's Cat People. <laughs> no, but I remember seeing commercials for it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone of Rocky Three also appeared in First Blood in 1982. Uh, no, that's going to be a no for me. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger starting Conan the Barbarian that year. 
I like, listen, I did not see a Stallone or Schwarzenegger movie until I was, uh, my first Schwarzenegger movie was in college when one of my friends forced me to watch, um, Running Man. Your parents were doing something right. (laughs) I had no interest in those movies whatsoever. And, and, and now I've gone back and watched some of them, but yeah, at the time it was just like, this is not for me and I don't care. Two Clint Eastwood movies out in 1982, Firefox and Honky Tonk Man. (laughs) I've never seen either of those. Two Sidney Lumet pictures this year, Paul Newman in The Verdict and Michael Caine in Death Trap. Death Trap was very popular in my house. Um, I don't remember. I'm I'm sure I saw certain scenes, but my parents really, really loved that movie. Um, And I did not. Wait, what was the first one? The Verdict with Paul Newman. The Verdict. Yes. Um, Love Paul Newman. Still have not seen The Verdict. Good one. Savannah Smiles. Did you ever see Savannah Smiles as a child? I feel like I did. Who was in that again? Uh, no one of note, but this it, just, it was ubiquitous on on cable television in our youth. About a little girl who gets like kidnapped, but becomes buddies with her her kidnappers, and it's a whole thing. Was she the little girl who was on um, Love Sydney? I, maybe up. so. Maybe so. I'm gonna look it up. All yeah. right. While you're looking, Al Pacino in Author Author was released in 1982. I remember that it happened. Did not yep. see it. Uh, Ron Howard's Night Shift. That I did see. Um, actually, I feel like maybe I saw like some sanitized TV version of it. That makes sense. Um, yeah, um, because I was a huge Happy Days fan. And I'm like, wait, Ron Howard directed this and Fonzie's in it. Like, OK, mm-hmm. I'm in. Um, and I remember thinking it was very funny. And I was a became a big Michael Keaton fan, as I think a lot of us did. During yeah. Yeah. His debut picture was Night Shift. Uh, Peter O'Toole in My Favorite Year. Yeah, that's another one that I should have seen and I haven't. Please don't kick me off the podcast. I won't. (laughs) You're doing fine. You're doing fine. Steve Martin in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I've seen The Jerk. I did not see Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Robin Williams in The World According to Garp. Uh, That was another one that I wanted to see and I was not allowed. And then I just never went back to... To Fair. correct that. Uh, Susan Seidelman's Smithereens was released in 1982. Oh, gosh. I don't even remember that. Uh, the Slumber Party Massacre came out in 1982. <laughs> uh, no, I did not see that. <laughs> and finally, uh, Creepshow was released in 1982. I saw that eventually. And okay. I don't remember it very well. Like a lot of the Stephen King movies, especially the ones that weren't so great, kind of like Creepshow and Pet Cemetery are like kind of a blob in my brain. <laughs> I don't know why, because they're not the same at all. Um, but yeah. All right. That closes out our lightning round. Jen, you did fine. You did just fine. I did fine. terribly. That was pathetic. You did just <laughs> Cut out fine. most of it. You've seen many of the films. Uh, and that's about that's about all that we can ask. And now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. All right, Jen, where can people follow you on social media and read your work? Uh, I am, for reasons unknown, still on Twitter, still hanging on. <laughs> and my <laughs> my uh, profile is at Cheney J. Um, obviously, I write for Vulture and New York Mag. So you can go to Vulture and find a lot of my stuff. And I'm on Instagram at Jen Chaney TV, although I'm not as good at updating that as I am Twitter. 
And this is this this is going to be a weird time because we're recording this before Succession has ended, mm-hmm. um, but it will have ended by the time this goes up. So do you want to put any predictions for how it will wind up on the record so that we can compare them when the show goes on? I mean, I'm not the only one saying this, but I just feel like somehow Greg is going to end up in a, in a better position than a lot of the other people in the show. Um <laughs> without deserving it at all. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I can't imagine they would make him the CEO, but I just feel like he's going to be, if not in charge, in, in a very good spot. Probably a better spot than our poor dear Tom Wamsgans. My, right. uh, my favorite succession conversation is, these people don't actually fucking do anything. What do they do? And then people responding, <laughs> right, that's why it's so real. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. One of my favorite, this is a good one. This is a good Spielberg one. One of my favorite quotes from this season was when Greg said, it's like they're all in the movie Jaws, except they're working for Jaws. (laughs) (laughs) That is good. Oh, Jen, really seriously, that show offers so much to dig into and talk about. And the writing Mm -hmm. you've been doing on it lately has just been first rate. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Um, I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram and Jason Dash Bailey on Letterboxd, where you can find under my lists the top five for each and every episode of the show. Mike? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. And we are, as you have heard us mention, now on Substack, a very good year.substack.com. And if you are kind enough to become a paid subscriber, you will get bonus episodes. You will get bonus writing. You will get much, much more. I can just say much, much more, and that could be anything. Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1982? Uh, I have to go. I This one this one was hard. This one was a hard one to pick. There's a lot of good choices, but I had to go with Kiona Katsi at the end. Um, oh. I, I just, I love it so much. And it was one of those things like, you know, I obviously didn't see it when it was yeah. making the rounds when it came out at MoMA yeah. or something. I have no idea. But uh, <laughs> later, you know, I used to live with Axel Foley, who was uh, on an early episode of this show, and he worked at mm-hmm. World of Video, a fantastic video store. And, and yep. I feel like he brought home Keona Katsi on a, a letterboxed VHS. Like, I think it wow. got like I think it was yeah. very late in the sort of DVD cycle before mm-hmm. it was actually released. And he put it on and like, you know, dude, when I met Axel, like we didn't watch shit like that. I'm sorry, bro. But nope. like that just wasn't like I mean, I was in my mid early mid 20s, you know, like I just yeah. never see anything like that. It was very challenging. And I kept sort yeah. of saying, like, what is happening? Like, when is something going to happen? And he kept saying, like, smoke the joint and just fucking watch the movie, dude. Just shut up. <laughs> you know, and it was really like it, that movie was yeah. a real challenge for me when I've seen it when I first saw it. And now. I've just come to love it and appreciate just even what does I don't know just appreciate it so much and then later I saw Organism. Jason, have you seen the the seminal 1985 New York movie uh, Organism <coughs> that no. uh, where where this guy Hillary Harris like basically invented and perfected time lapse and then the Kianakati people saw that and was like fuck we got to get that guy and then he ended up taking <laughs> over half of their it just I just love it so much and it's yeah. just one of those things that continues to feed me the more I make films the more I watch films I can always go back to it and just it's it is every bit as impressive and challenging now as it was then uh, it grows yeah. with me you know so yeah, yeah i gotta go mm-hmm. with kianakatsi how about you buddy 
Well, first of all, I'll just say that as as part of that same, I think, you know, summer of 82 anniversary program, I got to see that film for the first time in a theater at the draft house last summer. And it was pretty fucking spectacular. Um, this is one of those ones where like, probably it's Tootsie. It's definitely mm-hmm. the one I've seen the most, but I'm going to g- take this moment to give a shout out to Richard Pryor live on the sunset strip, which is a oh, film nice. that I have written about in depth um, in my book, Richard Pryor, American id plug, 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 but it's, it's yeah. an incredible like you see it, it, this is the film that he that he that was recorded at his very first public performances after he nearly killed himself after he nearly set himself on fire freebasing cocaine um and you know for about an hour it's really great just sort of richard pryor stuff about you know sex and race and life and america and all that sort of stuff but like the last 20 25 minutes where he talks openly and candidly about that experience in his life is i think still sort of the gold standard for confessional stand-up comedy it's still just is is such an an incredible mixture of of truth and honesty and also it's still funny as shit um so yeah yeah richard Pryor live on the sunset strip okay thank you again jen for coming on the show thank you so much for having me guys thank you mike thank you jason and thank you for listening It was a very good year